most original and creative talent in our business, would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Buck Benny, the two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Well, Joel, again, this is Buck Benny speaking. We got a special presentation for you today of Orson Welles' uh, Mercury Theater presentation, uh, the Summer Mercury Theater, I guess. And this is uh, his presentation of Around the World in 80 Days with the original stage production and everything. And so... Uh, it, it'll be really interesting to listen to if you've listened to all of our commentaries so far. And uh, why don't we start off with Vincent to take us through uh, his thoughts on it. And if you can give us how close, what, what kind of what's in it that's in the play production mm -hmm. and what's not in it that's in the play, for what we're missing from the play production would be good. So go ahead, Vincent. Yeah, so absolutely. Um... So yeah, what, you, what you're about to hear is an abridged version of the stage play. It's um, what is in it is very close to the actual book. It's the actual music um, sung by the actual cast. And so this is as close a, as um, getting to the production as you can possibly get. That being said, a lot is cut. I mean, a lot. In fact, it's, in my opinion, a quite a... Uh, it's quite a bad sort of an abridged version, not because I, I think they could have done any better. It's because it should never have been an abridged version, frankly. Um, you know, what, what made this play good, the good parts were the spectacle. You know, the, the critics didn't love the music. And so this is an attempt clearly at PR. Wells is trying to get people to come see his show. And so he wants to put this as, you know, the first of the, this new summer uh, series that he's doing, which is gonna end up being more traditional, you know, sort of radio dramas. Um, but you know, there's only a couple songs and it's just like these half dashery, like things quickly put together. What's in it is undramatic. So, um, there's a scene where, uh, it'll be on medicine bow where essentially there's like a train crash. They have to get out or get across the bridge and it's staged like really beautifully. There's like a huge treadmill that they put on and things move across it. And then they sort of create this, um, sort of train crashing effect. And it was really well done. But in here, it's like, I don't, why do we need to listen to this train maybe get across the bridge? Like, you know, it's, it just sort of misses its dramatic point. It's, you know, you know, it's going to get across. So I think it's quite, uh, you know, it's not a great put together, but Wells is trying to get people to go to his show, yeah. but it is again, as close as you can get to um, the recordings. Cause other recordings that exist and there are some um, are sung by one person from the cast past part two, Larry Lawrence. He sings every song from it. Even the songs that are sung by other cast members. Um, and so you get it. Plus, you get to hear the only song that critics universally loved, which is If I Should Tell You That I Love You. And you'll hear it. And I want I, you know, I would implore people to see why was it popular? Why do people like I have no idea. I, I don't know why it's more popular than the other ones. I think they're all sort of mediocre personally. But <laughs> thanks, Vincent. Uh, Terry, what were your thoughts on this one? Uh, the part that was missing that I was most looking forward to, which of course would have been absurd in a radio broadcast, was the silent film that was shown at the beginning of the actual play, mm -hmm. uh, which apparently has been lost to the ages. But Wells did so much more than this music. He, I mean, it's, it's billed as 
Orson Welles presents Cole Porter's Around the World. Uh, and I don't know whether that was just part of their negotiation or, uh, you know, maybe Wells' way of hedging his bets. If this doesn't work, I can blame the composer for this mess. But there was so much more here than the mediocre music. And I agree with you, Vincent. I think from the little bit that I've heard both in, in this episode that we're about to listen to and uh, and the, the cast recording, the music was, was the least interesting part and and I I wouldn't even call this a musical. It was uh, a spectacle, and it's unfortunate that that uh, we can't that there's no film of the the entire production. Uh, oftentimes, Broadway shows are filmed, and even though they're not available most of the time to the general public, they're at least uh, in the archives. Um, that's not the case with this show, but. Um, it's good that we have so many accounts of it, critical accounts, and you know, in, in newspapers and, and individuals who uh, went and saw it and talked about it afterwards. The only other thing that that I observed about the um, this recording of the you know, re-recording, staged recording of the show, is that it, it seemed kind of, and maybe this was representative. I don't know. I didn't. I wasn't there in 1946. Uh, it seemed kind of amateurish. It didn't really seem like a you know, high quality, what we've come to expect is a high quality professional uh, production. And so maybe the other thing that bothered the critics at the time was if this is representative of, of how the music sounded, maybe there was this contrast between Wells over the top staging of it and this, you know, subpar uh, music from, uh, from Cole Porter. And again, as I mentioned in the previous uh, episode, it was disappointing that this was Cole Porter's music because it really didn't seem up to his standard, mm -hmm. not what I would have expected from Cole Porter music. Uh, but it was maybe even just badly presented. And it's, you know, let's face it, this was not Orson Welles' area of expertise. Did uh, Vincent, maybe you can tell me, did he have a musical director, someone who was responsible not just for the, the orchestration, but for the, you know, the, the singers, you know? Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't know a whole lot about it, but they definitely had like, you know, every uh, every normal capacity of, you know, a production team. Um, yeah, they did. So, you know, maybe that person was, uh, you know, whoever that was, was not. not <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm looking for somebody to blame other than Orson Welles because, you know, we all ad admire his his genius and his accomplishments. But uh, taken as a whole. <laughs> Beginning with the music and ending with the, the catastrophe that, that was the production uh, overall. Uh, it, you know, it's a little bit like watching a train wreck. If you want to see it, go ahead. But I'm kind of glad that I missed this one. <laughs> well, this reminds me of sort of Lex Radio Theater and how they would talk about how some films transfer really well from uh, visual to audio only and others don't. And there were some films they couldn't do or even make an attempt at doing. Uh, and, and with this, this is probably, my guess would be one of those productions that is so visual that it, it probably wasn't the smartest production to take and just make an audio version of it. But knowing like Vincent well, saying that this is just an ad more or less for going to see the show, that, they, that, that, that could be where they were going with it. John, you were gonna say something? I heard uh, The Wizard of Oz on Lux Radio Theater, which is a highly visual movie. Yes. And yet 
the radio show is just as entertaining. Mm-hmm. So who knows if they could have done a better job. Right. Uh, you know, I've been listening in on these commentaries, hearing about the production and the behind the scenes and what's going on and very curious about it. So I was very happy to hear this contemporary, you know, example of what the show might have been like. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that it was abridged. I'm not sure I would want it to be longer than half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Um, actually, I listened to the because he mentions that he had done the uh, Around the World in 80 Days once before, mm-hmm. long before he did the show. So I listened to that one from 38. It's actually the episode before War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. The yep. week before. Wow. Uh, and this and the episode is a lot longer. And I don't think much was gained by having it longer. Um, so, yeah, I was actually surprised how similar it was. Oh, you know, the two really? episodes, yeah. really. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, I thought it was entertaining. It was interesting as a musical. Um, I don't think that he, you know, mentioned Cole Porter to put blame on it, but because <laughs> Cole Porter is a name, right? Yeah. Like yeah. anything yeah. goes, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. If you've got Paul McCartney doing your music, even if it's terrible, you're going to say <laughs> Paul McCartney's Around the World in 80 Days. Yeah. So, yeah. I thought it was really interesting as history. Uh, oh, yep. Orson Welles, a very talented actor. Yes. Uh, do you know, Vincent, Unlike how Ron many Stanley. parts in this episode? Uh, he plays, yeah, he plays a lot. I mean, they're mostly in the background. But, I mean, he plays Dick Fix, obviously. Um, but he plays, like, a lot of other, like, the other thing that's not really mentioned very well is that Dick Fix, during um, the actual show, would, like, take on disguises. And so he become characters at the places. So it's actually, it's not just Wells playing other parts. It's Wells playing Dick, Dick Fix playing other parts. Right. They don't explain that very well in the radio broadcast, but that's what's happening. So it's actually Wells playing a character who's playing other characters. Yeah. And I, he does a good job. I mean, he's, you know, he's quite versatile, I will say. Well, especially um, this must be live, right? For him to mm-hmm. switch from one to another, I, I thought that was really uh, pretty impressive. Yeah. Yep. Definitely, definitely. Well, and I, apparently, uh, I don't think Vincent knows this, but he tried to reach out to Paul McCartney, and Paul McCartney was not available <laughs> to do the show. He, uh, you know, and 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 at the you know, a six year old is probably not going to be quite as accomplished as McCartney would later be. So, uh, mm-hmm. McCartney need a little more aging to 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 go. On. <laughs> I love that. I think he'd be six at that time. Yeah, I think he was born in 1940 or something like that, 41. Yeah, anyway. (laughs) But that was a good point. I mean, I do think that's why he used Cole Porter, because it was Cole Porter's name. It's like, if you're going to get Gershwin to to do your, you're like, yeah, whatever I get from him is is good. I mean, and then he's he's kind of like Orson in his own way, too, where you get Orson, and Orson says he's excited about this thing or whatever, and you go, oh, yeah, that'll probably be great. And even though you're thinking in your head, that's not as great as you think it is, you know, and, and the same thing with Cole Porter. I don't know how comfortable um, Orson would have been at going to Cole Porter and going, you know, can we spice this up a little bit? This is not your best soundtrack. It is not your best songs, but I, I, I don't know. That would always be a weird thing. I mean, uh, Terry has mm-hmm. probably has actual knowledge of that sort of thing of, of you're working with people and they're not giving you what, what you think is their best. I mean, is that a hard thing to do to, to tell people, Oh, uh, you know, can you relook at that or can you, you know, I don't know. 
Uh, we're doing it right now. We're in the middle of uh, having actors reread lines because they're not up to what I know they can do. Um, it's And it's painful because uh, these are people I admire and like working with. I don't want to insult them. Uh, but mm -hmm. if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting that, as Wells tells the story, I guess it was in the, the previous episode, that, that he went to Cole Porter's home in Brentwood. I didn't know Cole yeah. Porter lived in Brentwood. <laughs> there are all kinds of interesting insights into the into the process of, of making this uh, production, of, of bringing it to, uh, to fruition. But but you're absolutely right, Daryl. If if um, it's not working, the, it's the producer's responsibility in the end to do whatever it takes to get it together. And right. so the, it the was thing on that well. I wonder, Sorry? I, I was going to say, the thing that I wonder is, I mean, obviously he knew there were some problems, technical problems and things like that. But, you know, you hear him promoting it. He seems to genuinely, like, believe in it. I wonder if he's just doing that for the audience to promote the show or does he actually like it? Does he actually think this is a really good show? It just needs a chance. Yeah, he definitely loved this show. I mean, he would say later in his life that this was his favorite and he would argue his most important production. I don't know if he's doing that to be sort of like, <laughs> you know, iconoclastic about his own career. Right. But yeah, he definitely I mean, he definitely believed in it. He was a big fan. He always wanted to branch away from sort of being typecast as anything. I mean, he's, you know, he's always considered a genius and an artist, but he always wanted to do things that were different. I mean, he's still fighting, you know, the war of the world's reputation here. So he's trying to do something that's like way over here, you know, Citizen Kane, all this stuff that's like artsy. And so he's always trying to reinvent himself, do comedy. So I think he, he did definitely believe in it. Whether he knew there were problems, I'm sure he did. I mean, he's a, he's a smart dude. I mean, he lives sort of in denial sometimes, but I get the sense that him and Cole Porter worked very independently on their separate parts of it. Um, obviously there's some cohesion, but um, I don't see any evidence that they were like deeply collaborating or exchanging notes. You know, Cole Porter is a, is a 800 pound gorilla by, you know, for sure more so than Wells. And so I, I don't imagine Wells giving him too many pointers, especially because, you know, Wells isn't writing songs or anything like that. So Right. Makes sense. Well, I guess we'll leave it there. And uh, I hope everybody enjoys this production. This is the closest you're ever going to hear about something that we've talked about for, at this point, almost months, I think. And uh, so so I, I think it's exciting we can present this to you in, in this format that it has. And I think John's point is interesting, too, that, that if you ever get a chance to go back and listen to the original presentation that he did in 38, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, um, that would be interesting as well. Um, I haven't listened to the two back to back. I've listened to both of them, but I'm but not back to back. But uh, like John says, there's definitely some similarities, some differences, obviously. Uh, but uh, an, an enjoyable uh, time you'll have anyway. So enjoy this episode. Good evening. This is your obedient servant, Orson Welles, your producer of a special series of broadcasts, a festival of your favorite radio dramas, presented by the makers of Pab's Blue Ribbon Beer. The Mercury Summer Theater of the Air. Yes, tonight and every Friday night, Pabst Blue Ribbon presents you with a front row seat in one of the greatest plays ever produced on Broadway. So while America's famous producer, writer, director, Orson Welles entertains you, pour yourself a tall, frosted glass of Pabst Blue Ribbon and enjoy, at the same time, great theater and this truly great beer. Thirty-three fine brews, blend.
Summer theaters are among the most genial of all theatrical institutions. The atmosphere is pure holiday for everybody on both sides of the curtain, and it's just in that spirit that we of the theater begin, the Mercury Theater, begin tonight a summer festival of revivals. Plays and stories we've done more than once before because you've told us more than once you like them. Tonight it's one of the first things we ever put on the radio, and by no coincidence whatsoever, it's the very latest thing we put on the stage. You can see it now on Broadway at the Adelphi Theater, Sunday evenings included. And if you're one of our staunchest friends, you'll remember it from among the first Mercury broadcasts. Many an eventful year before Cole Porter put the whole slam-bang, she-bang to music for us. His music, a portion of it, makes up the main part of this evening's entertainment. A half hour really isn't time enough for the story alone. This being what it is, a gaudy old melodrama from our youngest days with equal parts of plot and plush. So take it, if you please, with a smile and our warmest compliments for the warm season. Here it is then, minus many scenes and much mileage, with a hop, skip, and a jump around the world in 80 days. It's the year 1872. A bank has just been robbed. A certain Mr. Dick Fix, a sort of stool pigeon, a private detective, an ugly customer, enacted this evening by your obedient servant, is busy leading the London police in a frantic search for the bank robber, who is, if truth were known, Dick Fix himself. The opening scene is in Hyde Park, and involved in it are a lackadaisical Yankee, Mr. Passepartout, and a young Irish nursemaid named Molly. These besides Fix himself. All right there, all right. Hold him, boys. Hold him there. Now then. See anything of this bank robber, you? No, sir. Who are you, sir? Dick Fix, the copper's knock, and these men with me are police. Now then, you, your name, residence, and place of occupation. Me? Well, I've been sleeping in the park. Residence, odd park, means a livelihood. I am a sailor, but I missed my ship. I'm stranded. Please, sir, this young gentleman couldn't have anything to do with any bank robbery. How do you know? He's been right here in the park with me these past two hours. Nursemaid, ain't you? How come you know this man? Well, sir, we haven't been formally introduced, but we have been sort of passing the time of day. Boys, you got the wrong man, but don't fear I'll get the right one if I have to search the old of London from Tooting back to Putney Green. Come along, men. Thanks, lady. Thanks for standing up for me like that. So you missed your ship, sailor man. However did that happen now? I overslept. Hey, look here in the grass. Look what I found. A half a dollar, a half a crown, you call it. That's lucky. Lucky. What you need a job. And I know where you can get one. A job? In the flat below where I work. A gentleman needs a gentleman's gentleman. Could you be a valet? Nothing to it. Sure, I'm lucky. Just meeting you, Miss, uh, Miss... Uh, Muggins. Uh, Muggins? Molly Muggins. Uh, the pleasure's mine, I'm sure. Molly. Golly. So wrong seemed the world, I faced it with rage. Why, hopeless I whirled like a mouse in a cage. Till you came in range, not that life was worth, then presto change. I'm the happiest boy. I'm the happiest girl. Oh. Look, look, look what I've done From nights of care and 
dismal despair of days only lonely in view. I want to see how sweet life could be, that great big moment when I found you. So time, clock is one minute, 27 seconds slow. This is your new valet, sir. I'm pleased to meet you. Indeed? And what is your name? Passepartout. Passepartout, my father was French. That can be overlooked. My friends call me Pat. That shouldn't be necessary. Give me my hat and stick. I'm off to the whist club. From this moment, two minutes after 11 o'clock a.m. this Wednesday, October the 2nd, 1872, you are in my service. You will wake me at eight each morning to the toll of St. James's chimes with tea and toast, but important most, a heated copy of the Times. A slightly undone copy of the London Times. At 11.29 precisely, I depart from a club each day. So your orders are pat to be positive that I am dressed in an elegant way. For although tis of no interest to me, if I please either damsel or dame, tis a matter of pride as the streets I stride to hear all the ladies exclaim. To hear the ladies all exclaim. There he goes, Mr. Phileas Fogg, setting every girly agog. Wouldn't he make a marvelous mate? Never early, never late. There he goes, that smart Mr. Phileas. In his clothes, so pick a dick What a dude, what a dapper old dog. There he goes, Mr. Phileas Fogg. There he goes, there he goes, there he goes. Well, 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 well. Scotland Yard has come to me to old Dick Fix. The coppers knock to help them find the bank robber. Little do they guess the bank robber is me, but I'll mislead them. I'll pin the job on this here Phileas Fogg and get the reward for doing it, because I plays it two ways. That's why they calls me Double Dealing Dick. Gentlemen, fellow members of the Whist Club, I bid you good evening. Oh, good evening, Fogg. Well, Jeopardy, what about that robbery in your bank? Blasted spry of you, Fogg, I must say, getting your money out before the theft. We are offering a handsome reward for the bandit's arrest. Reward or no, I say the chances are all in his favor. There is not a single country where the thief could hide. Sure, well, it's big enough. It was, formerly. How oh, formerly? <laughs> Has the world grown smaller, perchance? Much smaller, my dear sir, since we can now circle the globe in 80 days. I'll wager 4,000 pounds such a journey is impossible. I accept you mean, sir, to circle the globe? In 80 days? In 80 days, and I'm willing to bet 20,000 pounds, I'll do it. 20,000? Which an unforeseen delay may make you lose? The unforeseen does not exist. The Dover train leaves at 8.45 tonight. I will take it. Today is the 2nd of October. I will be back in London in this very salon of the Whist Club on 
Saturday, the 21st of December at 8.45 o'clock in the evening. 20,000 pounds? Well, Mr. Fogg, yes. I'll meet the bet. Compose yourself, my dear Cheverty. This isn't serious. <laughs> my dear Sir Charles, we are Englishmen. And when an Englishman makes a bet, it is always serious. breaking any doors, Dick. What evidence have you got against this here Phileas Fogg? Well, Chief, he answers the bank robber's description. Does he? He's going to if he don't now for the doorman. One, two, three. Hey, thrown the tool. Through the back way, boys. After him and off it now. But wait a bit, the gas. He left the gas burning. That means he's coming back. But when? In 80 days, Mr. Fogg? It does seem a short time, but I'm confident we'll do it. Seems like a long time to me. How's that? Well, sir, we were so rushed leaving London, I forgot to turn off the gas. Very well, young man. The gas will burn for 80 days at your expense. Tech Special Agent reporting to Scotland Yard. The bank robber Phileas Fogg left Brindisi at high noon on the mail packet Mongolia for Suez, Egypt. Rush warrant, rush reward. Meantime, our dog is footsteps, using all possible ruses to delay his journey. Excuse me, sir. Yes, ma'am? Could you tell me when the next boat sails? Bound eastward, ma'am? How far? As far as possible. I'm going after my intended. And if needs must be, I'll follow him around the world. Well, Passepartout, we are now in British India. Well, one half day ahead of schedule. Look, Mr. Fogg, the train has stopped. So it has. You are the train conductor? I am that. We've come to a halt. Why? Where are we? At the hamlet of Colby in the great Indian forest. And why, pray, do we not continue? The railway isn't finished yet. The bike ticket reads Bombay to Calcutta by sir, rail. Sir, there won't be any more rail for three months. I shan't be able to wait. Mr. Fogg, what would you say to an elephant? I don't know. What does one say to an elephant? <laughs> oh, I see what you mean. Yes, by all means, let us purchase such a beast. My man, I don't speak your lingo, but I desire to rent your elephant. I trust you know sufficient English to negotiate. What do you ask? For my elephant, Sahib, 80 rupees. 80 rupees, I say. Isn't that a trifle still? 80 rupees. I'll give you 20. 70. 30. 60. 40. 50. 60. 70. 80. 90. You drive a hard bargain, sir, but it's a deal. Wire urgent. Special agent fixed to Scotland Yard and following fog disguised cleverly as Parsi Mahout. With valid passport too, the bank robber is proceeding towards Calcutta through the great Indian forest by way of little-known and dangerous territory of Bundelkund by elephant. Why does the beast pause? The elephant pauses because she senses danger. Ah, gentlemen, you may well rue the day you ventured so far into the mountain fastnesses of Upper Bundelkund. I hear savage music. The song of Kali, goddess of death. Behold, Sati. Sati? 
What's that? The sacrifice by fire. There comes the procession. Looks like some kind of funeral. Who is the deceased? Aouda, a wealthy prince of the neighborhood. Behold, they are bringing his body to the funeral pyre. And there, there comes his young widow. Her husband's corpse will be cremated and she will be put to the flames by his side. Burned alive? A native custom. But how could it be that such foul practices still are countenanced? Where is the beneficent hand of our British Empire? Where are we now? The pagoda of Pilaji. See, there is the funeral pyre. They are placing the Princess Aouda beside her husband's corpse. And lo, here come the priests with torches. The fires have started. Look, look there. I can't. It's too horrible. See the corpse. The corpse of the old prince himself. He stirs. The corpse rises to its feet. How can this be? He takes the girl into his arms. He brings her towards us. Let us flee. No, no, wait, wait. That isn't an Indian. An Englishman, an Englishman in disguise. And here is the princess, the beautiful Aouda. I am she. And whom have I to thank for this? Fog, madam. Phileas Fogg. My master! I knew it. Knew what? It is not true what my people say about the British. Dear Mr. Fogg, you are a man of heart. Occasionally, my dear madam, occasionally, when I have the time. Special Agent Fix to Scotland Yard Urgent. And with bank robber traveling by boat with Yankee accomplice and Indian girl companion, Fogg is presently on the high seas. Some 300 miles northeast of Singapore. Evening, miss. You're the Hindu girl, ain't you? You don't know me, but I know you, Mrs. Aouda, feeling a bit homesick for India. Indeed not. It would be worth my life to return there. You may have to after I get Mr. Phileas in Hong Kong. What do you mean? Shh, here he comes now. Well, Mr. Fogg, so you finally come out of your cabin for a bit of air. A pretty night out, ain't it? I don't think we've been introduced. Oh, by the by, Mrs. I, should you find yourself a bit short of the ready, come to old Dick Fix, the copper's knock, for I'll be rich when I get to, you know, who in Hong Kong, rich beyond the dreams of avarice. Why are you British people so greedy for money? Money cannot buy you happiness. I know, but I like to have it around so I can choose the type of misery that's most agreeable to me. <laughs> well, I'll leave you lovebirds to enjoy the moon together. Nighty night. I trust that person has not made himself offensive to you. He frightens me. The evening is warm, madam, but you are shivering. With you to guard me, Mr. Fogg, to be fearful is an ungrateful passion. The moon is very lovely. Mrs. Aouda, that is your name, is it not? It is. Mr. Aouda... I have no interest, madam, in your late husband, nor indeed in you. I am, to be frank, a bachelor, and will see you to safety as such. My meaning is clear? It is. Good night, Mr. Fogg. Madam, good night to you.
gentlemen, singing Cole Porter's great new song, Should I Tell You I Love You, which brings us to the first act curtain of Around the World. In the Mercury Summer Theater cast tonight, straight out of the Mercury Broadway production, are Mr. Arthur Margotson, who plays the punctilious Mr. Phileas, Miss Julie Warren, who is Molly Muggins, Mr. Larry Lawrence, who is Passport Two, and among others, the villain of the piece, who is also its producer, your obedient servant. We'll get back to work in just a minute, but now it's intermission. And in any summer theater, time for a stroll out on the terrace, a breath of the fragrant June night, a smoke, some friendly conversation, and a nice frosty glass of Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. Nothing less. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Hairbreath Ken Roberts in the nick of time and right on cue to tell you while we fix our scenery for the second half of Around the World about a world of flavor in 33 fine brews. There most certainly is a world of flavor in Pabst Blue Ribbon. The kind of flavor which makes a fellow smack his lips and say, this is it. Not too light, not too heavy. This truly great beer has a fresh, clean, real beer taste all its own. You see, every single drop of Pabst Blue Ribbon is the happy result of blending. The full flavor blending of never less than 33 fine brews. That's right. Never less than 33 fine brews blend their individual taste tones to give you a blended, splendid Pabst Blue Ribbon. If occasionally these days your dealer can't supply you with all the Pabst Blue Ribbon you'd like, well, keep on asking. For every single bottle you do get will live up to the same high standards of quality and taste. Yes, every bottle will be, as always, blended, splendid, Pabst Blue Ribbon. Thirty-three fine brews blended into one great beer. Thirty-three fine... And now, ladies and gentlemen... Around the World, Part the Second. For purposes of time and radio, we skip ahead some 8,000 miles and some 60 of the 80 days in which, according to his solemn wager with the Whist Club, Mr. Phileas Fogg, in the year of our Lord, 1872, was undertaken to circumnavigate the globe. With Mr. Fogg is, of course, the Hindu princess, Mrs. Aouda, lately rescued from the funeral flames, of Sati, you remember, in Upper Bundelkund, and his valet, Pat Paspatou, and an honest nursemaid of the old sod known as Molly Muggins. Because we're somewhat pressed for time this evening, we permitted Miss Muggins to catch up with Mr. Paspatou, whom she greatly admires, during the intermission. The entire party is at this moment in one of the furriest sections of the American Wild West, precisely speaking, in the Wasatch Mountains, advancing by train toward the perilous pass at Medicine Bow. To thicken the plot a bit for you, if possible, it's coming up for a blizzard. You, sir, you are the train conductor? I'm Jake. Jake, the engineer. Bridge over the pass is gone, or almost gone. We're going to have to spend the night here. Cannot the river be crossed in a boat? Raining too hard, snowing too bad, blizzard too awful, cricks all swole up like a horse with a green apple colic. Be that as it may, I suggest that we pass over the bridge first. Over the bridge? And I'm willing to pay double fare for every soul on board this train if you, sir, Mr. Engineer, will undertake to chance it. On the bridge? On the bridge. With our train? With our train. But the bridge threatens to fall. Yeah, the brave thing won't hold. It won't hold. She's a teetering and a tottering right now. I believe that by rushing the train over at its maximum of speed, we'll have some chance of passing. What is your estimate? Oh, 50-50. 50-50, an excellent risk. Let us proceed. Onward, 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 ever onward. Fog's train hurtles toward the rickety bridge. 
panning the awesome gorge at Medicine Bow. Now, Jake, the engineer, as it may already have been ascertained, is nothing more than another aspect of the protean Mr. Fix. Fix of the thousand faces, Dick Fix, the copper's knock, still dogging Fogg's footsteps around the world. Since your obedient servant is portraying this unsavory character, imagine yourself in the red-hot cabin of the engine, thundering towards the pass. The salmon pink mustachios and red nose are those of Jake the engineer, but the thoughts, the thoughts are the black thoughts of Fix, the copper's knock. <laughs> old, old double-dealing Dick himself. It's my game to slow up Fogg until the warrant comes from London so as I could get me the reward by pinning my crimes on him. But now, now he's forcing me to cross this bleeding bridge, and after what I did to it, after what I did to it, I doubt if I can. There comes the bridge now. God help us if she doesn't hold. She's a teetering and a tottering. There goes the bridge. It fell just behind us. Safe. Safe at last. the scene changes to England, the city of Liverpool, some three short weeks later. My friends, I have gone around the world in 80 days, plus four hours and five minutes. I have lost... There he is, boys. Nab him. Who are you, sir? A police inspector. Mr. Fogg, you are wanted for bank robbery. I arrest you in the name of the Queen. At long last, Mrs. Aouda, who so dearly loves Mr. Fogg, gains admission to his dank cell in the Liverpool jail. Madam, will you pardon me for having brought you to England? I, Mr. Fogg? Please be kind enough to allow me to finish. When I rescued you, I was rich and counted on placing a portion of my fortune at your disposal. But now, I'm ruined. However, I ask your permission to dispose of the little I have left in your favor. Thank you for calling, and goodbye. Mr. Fogg, do you wish at once a relative and a friend? Will you have me for your wife? Aouda. Phileas. Passepartout. Coming, Mr. Fogg. Find me a minister of the Church of England. We expect to be married. Married? Ask the Reverend to step round here tomorrow. Tomorrow? Tomorrow, Monday. Tomorrow is Sunday. Nonsense. That's right, Phileas. Today is Saturday. I've made my first miscalculation. If today is Saturday, my friends are waiting for me in the London Whist Club. And you've just got three hours and ten minutes left. Three hours, nine minutes, and 35 seconds. The sound of whistling, the whistling, indicates the pursuit by the English police of Dick Fix, whose true identity as the bank robber is revealed just in the nick of time, just in time to release Fogg from jail. And the scene now changes to London... And the whisk club. I gave the coppers the slip. Now then, now for a word with these foreign gentlemen of the whisk club. Uh, good evening. Good evening, sirs. Who are you, sir? I'm poor old double-dealing Dick himself, and I, 
I've double dealt myself out of the entire deal. I've bribed armies, blown up bridges, and what's it got me? No boodle, no carpet bag, no reward. But I have slowed up old Phileas for you, and that's your bet, and I would like my share of the winnings. We'll talk to you, sir, after we've won the bet. But you've won it already. We haven't, but we're just about to. He has 14 seconds left. Ah, no, no, no. Fogg lost a day. No, sir. He gained a day. He traveled eastward. Eastward toward the sun. The international dateline. He has nine seconds left. Eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two. two. Gentlemen, I am here. Fuck! And Mrs. Fogg. No ladies. No ladies allowed in the wish club. Sir, this is no lady. This. No, 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 no. Hot on his trail, Dick Fix makes off into the night, leaving the lovers, Pat and Molly, Mrs. Aouda, and Mr. Phileas Fogg to celebrate the remarkable journey made in the year 1872 around the world in 80 days. Orson Welles will be back in just a few seconds to tell you about next week's production of the Mercury Summer Theater. But first, the makers of Pabst Blue Ribbon wish to remind you that though you may not be able always to get Pabst Blue Ribbon beer every time you want it in these days of grain restrictions, it is well worth your while to keep asking, for every bottle you do get will continue to live up to its name. There will be no cutting of corners, no lowering of standards of flavor or goodness, no compromise with quality. This truly great beer will be, as always, the happy blending of never less than 33 fine brews. As always, blended splendid Pabst Blue Ribbon. Now, here is Orson Welles. Next week, ladies and gentlemen, we, we take our tongue almost entirely out of our cheeks and bring you a great romance, a really great romance and an old favorite of ours, The Count of Monte Cristo. At the same time next week, same station. Please join us. Until then, speaking for my sponsors, the makers of Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer, and all of us in the Mercury Theater, I remain, as always, obediently yours. This program came to you through the courtesy of the Pabst Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Makers of blended, splendid Pabst Blue Ribbon. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs>